If you would open your Bibles to the 17th chapter of 2 Chronicles, we'll study the entire chapter, verses 1 to 19. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 1 to 19. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Jehoshaphat, his, that is Asa's son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa his father had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the balls, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments, not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. And all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord, and furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hail, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathanael, and Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them the Levites, Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemiramoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah. And with these Levites, the priests Elishama and Jehoram. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents in silver for tribute, and the Arabians also brought him 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. And Jehoshaphat grew steadily greater. He built in Judah fortresses and store cities, and he had large supplies in the cities of Judah. He had soldiers, mighty men of valor in Jerusalem. This was the muster of them by the fathers' houses of Judah, the commanders of thousands, Adna, the commander, with 300,000 mighty men of valor, and next to him, Jehonahan, the commander, with 280,000. Next to him, Amasiah, the son of Zikri, a volunteer for the service of the Lord, with 200,000 mighty men of valor. Of Benjamin, Eliada, the mighty man of valor, with 200,000 men armed with bow and shield. And next to him, Jehozabad, with 180,000 armed for war. These were in the service of the king, besides those whom the king had placed in the fortified cities throughout all Judah. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, it's so stirring to read of what you're able to do and what you delight to do when your people rely upon you, when we seek you, the Lord our God. Let us be encouraged. No doubt the writer of Chronicles wants us to draw the conclusion, and not that this is something that's so remarkable, but this is what ought to be the case, that we ought to lead such lives. In fact, Lord, our generation needs us to do so. So give us grace as we study this passage. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Many Christians can tell you who their Bible hero is or their Bible heroes are. Maybe it's the heroic David or the brilliant Paul, the faithful Jonathan, one of my heroes. Maybe it's the industrious Dorcas. 
Now, in most cases, that choice will reflect our own sense of need or inspiration. Now, there's little doubt that the writer of Chronicles had his Bible heroes, and he admired them because they fit the message he was writing to convey. Now, you remember the chroniclers served the early 5th century B.C. post-exilic community in Jerusalem as they were seeking to make a fresh start of things a century or so after the Babylonian exile. And his message urges them that by trusting the Lord in obedient faith, God's people may be confident of his gracious blessing, even when times are hard, and even when that's the case because of the sins of those who went before us, or even our own sins. Now, for this purpose of the chroniclers, there are three kings whom he clearly wants us to ponder as examples for our faith and conduct. These three kings receive a longer and more detailed treatment than the other kings. In fact, these three kings alone are praised with the accolade that they walked in the faith of their father, David. Now, in reverse order, these kings are Josiah, Judah's last godly king who reformed the nation in the midst of a gathering storm, Hezekiah, who resolutely trusted the Lord in the face of deadly peril, and I think above even them, Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa. Now, the chronicler's record of Jehoshaphat will span four chapters in comparison to only two each for his father and great-grandfather. His great-grandfather only got one chapter. And in Jehoshaphat, the chronicler finds a worthy successor to the great Solomon, whose life occupies the first ten chapters of this book. Now, we don't know who the chronicler was. I don't know. I don't know if he had any sons. But if he had sons, I'd be willing to wager that one of them was named Jehoshaphat, and we'll see why as we study these chapters. Jehoshaphat was the son of Asa. He was Judah's fourth king after Solomon, the son of David. He reigned for 25 years from 872 to 848 B.C., early to mid-9th century B.C. He was a contemporary of Ahab, that notoriously evil king of Israel, and also of the prophet Elijah. Jehoshaphat was a man fitted for the demands of his time. Indeed, he was the kind of man the church needs in every age, a believer of humble faith and sincere godliness. One biography says that his reign was characterized by the religious spirit that pervaded every act of the king who sought the favor of the Lord in every detail of his life. Jehoshaphat came to the throne at age 35 and quickly became a well-established king. And what's most impressive, I think, is that right from the start, he began acting in such a way as to promote the true faith and especially to teach the people the word of God. Jehoshaphat was not waiting around, doing nothing for troubles to set in. No, he, he knew that unbelief and apostasy have to be attacked at all times and that a godly leader must always be acting according to Scripture. And Jehoshaphat knew that hardness of heart is, is not a seasonal affliction that strikes men and nations only occasionally. And when we later read the summary of his life, we understand why the chronicler must have loved Jehoshaphat, why he wanted his own generation to learn from the faith and example of this righteous king. And Second Chronicles 22.9 says simply this, 
Jehoshaphat sought the Lord with all his heart. Well, the opening verses of chapter 7 introduce Jehoshaphat as a most faithful son in the royal house of King David. It's the first thing we see, that he is faithful to his fathers. Now, his father Asa had died after a long and successful kingship that was generally marked by faith, but it was marred by hardness of heart in his later years. But Jehoshaphat picked up right where his father left off in his faith and godliness, and we read that he takes steps to ensure the safety of his people. Look at verses 1 to 2. Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured. Now, you see, Jehoshaphat was a doer who understood the role that had been given to him. He understood the needs of his time, and he set out to meet them with a godly zeal. Now, the fortresses and garrisons that he strengthened were built by his father along Judah's northern boundary with the apostate nation of Israel. In fact, we're told they extended beyond the border into the lands of Ephraim that Asa had captured. And when the text says that he strengthened himself against this threat, it means that he took constructive steps to ensure that his opponents would not be able to succeed against him or his kingdom. And so we can imagine Jehoshaphat inspecting the the, the fortresses and having the walls repaired. That has to happen every now and again. He would have made sure the weapons were all sharpened. He would have seen if the troops were trained to man the garrisons. Cyril Barber comments he had witnessed the hostility of the northern kingdom, and because Judah still held portions of Ephraim that were taken from Israel in battle, he may have feared that with a change of power in the south, Ahab, the king of Israel, might take advantage of the situation to try to take back some of the land held by Judah. Well, Jehoshaphat was determined that nothing like that was going to happen on his watch. In that way, he faithfully carried on the successful policy of his father, Asa. In fact, Asa, it seems, set an example to us by training his son for service to God's people. Well, Christian leaders today should follow Jehoshaphat's example by busying ourselves in the strengthening of the church. Like Judah, the church today occupies enemy territory in the world and we have a vigorous enemy in the devil and he is ready to pounce on any weakness we strengthen the church by ensuring sound pulpits by raising up covenant children who know the lord and his word by developing strong ministry plans to serve and grow our congregation we're to do particularly the leaders of the church what Jehoshaphat did, take a look at how things are going. What, what, what does the fortress look like? What can we do to make it stronger and more secure? And just because the previous generation had been so helped by God in gaining victory over his enemies, that was not an excuse for him to neglect his present duty to safeguard God's people. Well, neither should we neglect ours today. Now, Jehoshaphat not only secured the military safety of his people, but he safeguarded himself by walking before God in the true faith of his fathers. He was a faithful son, not only in the policy, the the, the political policy of the nation, the military policy, 
but also in the spiritual legacy. Verse 3, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. Now, God is ever kind. He is ever ready to support his people. But his holy purposes are deflected when his people walk in the ways of the world. And so Jehoshaphat's piety was not merely a private matter. It seldom is, you know. His personal faith, his personal habits of godliness would have repercussions for the whole kingdom. And the same is true today for fathers and mothers. Their piety, their godliness, their faithfulness greatly impacts the spiritual security and well-being of their families. The same is true of pastors and elders and deacons in the church, that we are to lead a strong church that is secure from enemy infiltration, starting with our own personal lives. Now, ancient Greek translations of the Old Testament, together with some of the Hebrew manuscripts, state in verse 3 that Jehoshaphat walked in the faith of his father Asa, whereas our version says, of his father David. Now, if Asa is the correct reading, it would make sense, this qualifier, you see, that he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. If that's supposed to be Asa, then it would be talking about the time prior to his hardness of heart, uh, before he fell into sin. However, since the chronicler makes the point, I mentioned earlier, that he compares these select kings to the faith of David, it seems to me that the majority of Hebrew manuscripts are right in saying that he walked in the faith of his ancestor David, who had lived many generations earlier. Andrew Stewart comments, within his own family, some had served the Lord, but others had not. Jehoshaphat had the wisdom to admire those who were godly and to model his life on them. Maybe you don't have a godly parents, but there are people who are fathers and grandfathers, mentors in the church, and you can look to them as models for your faith. Now, we're told in particular that Jehoshaphat did not seek the Baals. And that way he avoided the idolatries that had led to so much depravity. How much ruin had already been coming? We're going to see more of it, of course. But how much ruin had this idolatry to the Baals already caused in prior generations? I think by an analogy then, Jehoshaphat is like someone who's born into a family that's been ravaged for several generations by alcoholism. And therefore, he had the good sense to stay away from liquor. In his case, it was the Baal worship that was far more deadly. Well, positively, look at verse 4. Here's positively. He sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. By the practices of Israel, the chronicler means the wickedness that had grown out of the idolatry in the northern kingdom, especially during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, which was his contemporary. Now, Jehoshaphat then was a youth who had grown up going to church. He believed what he was taught there. And when he became king, when he grew up, he put it into practice. On the chronicler's phase, he sought the God of his father. That's his standard description of sincere God-honoring piety that results in a biblically regulated life of blessing. We were saddened when we studied the last chapter about God was very kind to Asa, his father, and he sent that prophet, Hanani, 
And, and the prophet's whole point was, come on, Asa, you, you know to trust the Lord. Stop relying on yourself. Stop trying to use worldly strategies. Make sure you rely on the Lord. And it was sad that Asa did not listen to that advice. But it may be that his son Jehoshaphat was listening. And he gained a source of strength far greater than any fortress walls could provide. Remember what the prophet told Asa, and, and Jehoshaphat seems to have heard it. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Second Chronicles 16.9 Well, Christians should not look on Jehoshaphat as a rare and unusual specimen of a heart that seeks after God. Instead, every Christian should strive to be the kind of son, the kind of daughter that faithful Jehoshaphat grew up to be. And Philip Ryken says this, a man like Jehoshaphat makes an excellent leader in society. He seeks God's wisdom for all his business. He makes an excellent husband and father. When he's faced with difficult domestic decisions about whom to marry, where to live, how to raise his children. He says, first, let us seek the counsel of the Lord. He does not rely on his own instincts, but he rests on God's counsel. Now, there are plenty of female versions of Jehoshaphat, and they, like the men, make an an enormously positive impact on the generation in which they live. They set an example by modest beauty, by managing their personal affairs well. They make enormous contributions to the work of the church. The sisters of Jehoshaphat know how to pray, and you will often find them giving counsel to others that comes from God's word. Now, few Christians today will be assigned to the kind of high office that Jehoshaphat occupied as king of Judah. But you know, the callings that we do have are high enough. Our callings in the home, our callings in the church, our callings in the world, oh, they're high enough for us to change the lives of many people, to safeguard precious things that are under attack. And Jehoshaphat stands out in his generation for the simple faith that he, for simple fact that he walked in true faith, in reliance on the grace and power of the Lord. And by the grace of God at work through the Holy Spirit, my friends, there's no reasons why we today cannot do what he did, that we cannot raise up sons and daughters who will walk in our faith as Jehoshaphat did his fathers. In response to the sincerity of his faith, look at verse 3, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. That's what the chronicler wants his generation to know. Yes, I know that things have been a mess. I know we've been in the Babylonian exile. I know that we ourselves aren't that great. Let's believe for ourselves. Let's walk in the ways of our fathers. Let's believe that if we will faithfully rely on our loving Heavenly Father, walking in the faith of those who've gone before us, then it will result in the rich blessings that God desires to bestow. Why shouldn't that be true? for us. Well, he was a faithful son to his fathers, but he was also faithful in his service to God. I think it's somewhat inappropriate when you're describing an Old Testament king to divide his labor into his secular versus his spiritual categories. It's kind of all one. This is Judah. He's the king in Jerusalem. Everything belongs to the Lord in a very special covenant way. 
But it is not inappropriate to note that Jehoshaphat was faithful not only in his military political duties, but he was also faithful in what we might call his religious duties. When it came to his duties as leader over the religious covenantal life of God's people, yet again he provides a stirring example of faith. Look at what, look at verse 6 and what the chronicler says. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. Now that word translated courageous literally means lifted up. His heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Now elsewhere it's usually used negatively for a proud person who's full of himself, who's lifted up in his own sense of glory and all of those things. But, but here it's used in a positive sense. Why? Because God is the one we should be proud of. We should boast in the Lord. We should be determined that his name should be exalted, that his ways would be followed. And Jehoshaphat was like the missionary pioneer Henry Martin, who in his groundbreaking work in India, he came to a village and there he saw a large painting depicting Muhammad sitting on a throne and the painting showed Jesus Christ bowing at the feet of Muhammad. Martin broke down in tears and he exclaimed, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. That's the kind of attitude that Jehoshaphat had with his heart courageous, lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Now, the chief threat to the glory of the Lord in Judah was not Islam. That would come along, you know, some centuries later, some millennia later. The problem was idol worship. And so verse 6 says, Jehoshaphat took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. Now, the high places, we've seen this before, were probably rustic worship centers where prior to Solomon's temple, people used to worship the Lord in, shall we say, less than biblical ways. Here the problem probably was not a violation of the first commandment, which, which, commands, which forbids the worship of false gods. The high places are probably more about the second commandment, which forbids the false worship of the true God. That's what's going on here. Now the ashram, these were poles that represented the pagan consort of Baal, where idol worship absolutely was taking place. And so because of his zeal for the glory of the Lord, Jehoshaphat takes steps to remove both of these kinds of places. Now you may say, didn't his father do that? Didn't we read back in chapter 14 the very same thing was said of Asa? We did. Asa did the same thing. You know what it shows? It shows that idolatry and false worship are pervasive. They're like weeds that have to be tended. They have to be rooted out. The same is true today. J.A. Thompson notes the people tended to revert to pagan ways and constantly were in need of reform. Well, it was not enough for Jehoshaphat that his public policy conformed to God's word. No, no, his, his zeal for the Lord was such that he was determined to ensure true religion throughout the land. But he was also wise in his zeal for the Lord because Jehoshaphat realized, it goes on to show, that it would not suffice merely to remove and to reprove these ungodly practices. The people needed to be taught the word of God in such a way that their hearts, like Jehoshaphat's, would be lifted up in the ways of the Lord. 
That's what Jesus prescribed. You remember in John 17, 17, how Jesus prayed for us to the Father on the night of his arrest. He said, sanctify them, make them holy. In the truth, your word is truth. And Jehoshaphat likewise realized that the, that the real pressing need of his people was the teaching of Scripture. And so his most constructive action in strengthening his kingdom is described in verses 7 to 9. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hail, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathanel, and Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah, and with them the Levites, Shemaiah, Nathaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, let me, let me try this again, Shemiramoth, Jehonathan, Adoniah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah. And with these Levites, the priests Elishama and Jehoram. And they taught in Judah, having the law, the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah, and they taught among the people. Now, scholars believe that the third year of Jehoshaphat's reign, it says this started in the third year of his reign, it's actually the first year in which he serves as sole king. The first two years were overlapping with Asa. He was co-regent because his father was so debilitated. Now he himself is king. He is in charge. And it seems, therefore, that commissioning Bible teachers was practically his first policy initiative as the new king. Now, this marks Jehoshaphat as an ideal ruler, according to the model laid down so many years beforehand by Moses in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 19. We see there the pattern for an ideal king is one who is himself a man of God's word. Let me read what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 17. When the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Literally, the first thing a new king was supposed to do was to make his own hand copy of the five books of Moses, maybe just the book of Deuteronomy, but one or the other. It's a massive undertaking. He was to write it by his own hand. He was to have the Levites and priests check it out to make sure he got it right, and he was to keep them with him everywhere he went. He was to be a man of the Word of God. That's what's being said here. And there's plenty of evidence to show that Jehoshaphat seems to have followed this pattern. And as a result, he was determined that his people would experience the same blessing as their king. Now, Jehoshaphat, notice, not only sent teachers out, he also sent royal officials. He sent his own royal authority to commend the teaching of God's word. With them were the Levites, who were not just ritual uh, people. They didn't just do the, 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 the ceremonies, but they were also teachers of the Bible, as Deuteronomy 33.10 says. And we're told they went about through all the cities of Judah, and they taught among the people, verse 9. Now, this Bible teaching, then, was Jehoshaphat's principal means of returning God's people to faithfulness. Now, the book of the law could be either the whole Torah, the five books of Moses would have been five large scrolls, maybe more likely it's the book of Deuteronomy in particular. The very scriptures Jehoshaphat had placed close to his own heart, he now set before the hearts and minds of his people. Well, Jehoshaphat's policy provides a clear emphasis 
not only on the private reading of Scripture, oh, we need the private reading of Scripture, but especially the public teaching of God's Word so that its message is proclaimed and its meaning is explained. Uh, Today we call such a ministry expository preaching. We're faithful and skilled servants of God teach his word to Christians. One of my professors, it always rings in my mind, he says our goal as preachers is to make a display of what is there. It's to teach the text, to lift it up, to proclaim it, to explain it, to apply it. This is what we're supposed to do. And in order to strengthen his kingdom, that's what Jehoshaphat did. He established a strong preaching ministry. Now surely we must do the same in the church today. Now, you may be asking, where did the young king get his idea for all this? Where did he get the conviction that he needed to ensure the teaching of God's word? After all, it seems to have fallen into neglect during at least the later years of his father. I think the most likely answer is that he got it from his personal study of the Bible. Jehoshaphat had been considering the fact that he someday would be king. He would be responsible for the spiritual well-being of the nation. Perhaps he consulted with priests or prophets who he respected. And they helped him to turn to the scripture for instruction. I like to think that one day he was reading his Bible as a young prince and he ran across Psalm 19, written by his own ancestor, King David. And if he did, he would have read this wonderful description of God's word, which more than commends it for its usefulness in blessing and reforming God's people. David wrote, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 19, 7-11. My friends, what else do we possess? that can be commended to that superlative degree? What else that you can hold in your own hand can be described as perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and altogether righteous? What else do we have access to that possesses this power, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes? Surely this commends God's word to us as it did Jehoshaphat, both for ourselves and for the edification of those under our charge. You see, the teaching of God's word will be the foundation of strong and godly families, certainly of churches like that today. And Jesus got into this. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said a person like this, a person who prizes God's word, is like a man who built his house on the rock. Matthew seven twenty four, And when the winds blew and the rains began falling, while houses built on worldly sand all around them were being washed away, Jesus said, oh, that godly house did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. Matthew seven twenty five. 
Well, the final section of chapter 17 depicts the blessings Jehoshaphat received as a faithful and righteous king. We've seen him as a faithful son to the faith of his fathers, a faithful servant of the Lord his God. And here's the blessings that come. Look at verse 5. It starts, Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. He established the kingdom in his hand. You see, his faithfulness and zeal for the Lord resulting in him getting a firm grip on his kingdom, the one God had placed under his care. The 16th century Protestant reformer, Victor and Striegel, made this comment about Jehoshaphat. The history of the pious and blessed Jehoshaphat confirms the rule given by Jesus in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. For when this king had worshipped God in true piety and removed the ungodly teaching and worship from their midst, not only spiritual gifts abounded, but also a profusion of external gifts like splendor, honor, power, and stability in his kingdom. Well, that's the very thing we find, the chronicler's record of the temporal blessings that Jehoshaphat enjoyed include the eager financial support of his subjects. Look at verse 5. And all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. The people must have experienced a lot of trepidation when Asa was starting to die. He'd been decrepit towards the end of his reign. And they realized that his hardened heart toward the Lord was a threat to the well-being of the nation. But then when Jehoshaphat emerged, And he showed such moral and spiritual integrity. He was doing the things that the faithful people of God knew were the right things to do. Well, how eager they were to rally behind him. They gave him moral support. They honored him. And they gave him the financial support that his his reign required. In a similar way, churches today that teach God's word and minister in faithful integrity will usually find there are exceptions but usually they will find that the people of the church are eager to eager to give the financial and moral support needed for the church to do its work a faithful church doesn't have to make constant harangues for money it preaches god's word it, it ministers to the people of god faithfully sometimes you have to talk about it but you're you're doing the work giving to you and the people of god respond financially and morally what, what martin selman noted about jehoshaphat's Material blessings applies to churches today. He says the fact that these riches are mentioned straight after Jehoshaphat's back-to-the-Bible campaign suggests they are the result of faithfulness to the teaching of God's Word. Now, Jehoshaphat's subjects were not the only ones who realized what verse 3 said, that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. His surrounding enemies also got that impression. And as a result, they decided that maybe now was not the time to raise our armies against Jehoshaphat. A, guy, a king like him in the past has had the Lord with him. In fact, the Lord seems to be with him. Let's send him tribute instead. Let's, let's just buy him off. That, that's what they did. They didn't sharpen their spears. They entreated him with favor, with, with tribute. Verses 10 to 11, the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah. They made no war against Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver for tributes, and the Arabians brought him 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats, verses 10 to 11. 
And Jehoshaphat used this wealth as a righteous king should. He, he doesn't erect shields of gold to surround him on his pedestal, not his own glory and earthly splendor and pleasure. No, he invests these resources for the further strengthening of his people. Verses 12 to 13, he built in Judah fortresses and store cities, and he had large supplies in the cities of Judah. Well, the concluding verses detail the military might Jehoshaphat was able to muster. It involves, shall we say, a very great number of militia supported by a strong professional corps. Verse 13 says the full-time army was stationed in Jerusalem nearby the king. But they were supported by a militia. If you add them all up, it comes to 1,160,000 men organized under leaders who gained the chronicler's mention? Adna, Amasiah, Eliada, Jehozabad. Now, we previously noted that the Hebrew word for thousand is also the word for unit. So it may be that the, the chronicler did not intend numbers this large, although since you know every man from 16 to 60 was eligible, or 50 from the army, it could well have been 1.1 million people. But the numbers might be a little lower because he might be using the term to mean units, companies, battalions, instead of thousands. It's still a great number. You see, what's clear is that Jehoshaphat, and here's the thing, by the simple of expedience, of faithfulness. I wonder sometimes, let's just, let's just try it. Have we tried being faithful to our fathers, faithful in service to our God? That's what he does. He reforms the worship of the nation. He sends out teachers to instruct the people in the word of God. But by that simple expedience, he's able to muster and mobilize the men of the nation to stand together in its defense under the leadership of resolute and stalwart men. Now look at verse 16. We need to give special notice to Amasiah, the son of Zikri, because he's cited as a volunteer for the service of the Lord. Now the word for volunteer means a person who offered himself freely. His name, he wasn't drafted. Most of them, there's a kind of a draft going on. If you're in a village, you're part of the military force of that village. No, no, he's a volunteer. Now that happens to be the very response that the New Testament calls for from us. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you're to be a volunteer. Those whose hearts are lifted up towards the Lord, as Jehoshaphat's was, they don't need to be compelled to serve. They don't need to be compelled or harangued to give financially or to bear witness to the good news of Jesus and his salvation. You think of what spiritual encouragement these soldiers of Judah must have enjoyed under the righteous kingship of Jehoshaphat. Well, we will enjoy the same if we will embrace the Apostle Paul's called to a willingly consecrated Christian life. Here's how Paul said we're to be volunteers. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a drink offering. Pour out your life, body and soul, to the Lord, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Well, a Christian who reads the account of righteous King Jehoshaphat might well exclaim, wouldn't it be great? I feel that way. Wouldn't it be great to live under the rule and the ministry of a king like this? 
Well, that's how you feel. I have very good news for you. Because if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do live under the rule and blessing of a king who is not only like Jehoshaphat, but you see, Jehoshaphat is himself a mere poor reflection. He's a type of Christ in all this. He's a mere poor foretaste of the fullness of all this that has come in the reign of our Savior and Lord, King Jesus. Jehoshaphat encourages us what a believer can accomplish through faith and God and his word. But you know what? His account does not end in this chapter, and it's not all good. He's still a hero, but in fact, the next chapter, he kind of messes it up. And that's, that's the way we are, isn't it? It's true of all human people we admire and look to. We've we got to realize they're not able really to get it done in the end. He's going to have pitfalls coming right up. They're not sins, but they're follies. They're going to undermine his rule. You see, the king we need is the one sent by God from heaven in the person of his own son. And far more so than even Jehoshaphat, Jesus Christ was faithful. He walked in the ways of his believing fathers. He perfectly kept every detail of his father God's commandments. Jehoshaphat was faithful to his father Asa by strengthening the fortresses of Judah on the border area of Israel. But our Lord Jesus obeyed his father in the far higher calling of delivering us from our sins by suffering the death of his cross. Paul writes of Jesus that being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2.8. And you see, in reward to our Savior, God the Father, establish not merely a worldly kingdom in Judah or in some little place where we might live. No, no, no. He established the eternal kingdom in his hands. Those hands that eternally bear in his glorified human flesh the marks of his suffering for us because of his love. The eternal kingdom of Jesus has been established now through the gospel and for the eternal age of glory that is to come. Well, just as Judah needed a king like Jehoshaphat, my friends, we need a Savior and Lord like Jesus. And when we receive him in faith, when we confess our sins, when we rely on his atoning blood, we gain citizenship into this eternal kingdom, his kingdom that will never pass away. Hebrews 5 verse 9 tells us that because of Jesus' faithfulness as the true, eternal, and righteous king, Hebrews 5.9, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Oh, Jehoshaphat was the source in God's blessing of, of so many good things for Judah. No, no, no. Jesus is the source because of his perfect redemptive obedience, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Well, if we have entered into Christ's better, greater kingdom through faith in his gospel, then there I say that like the people of Jehoshaphat's Judah, we should respond by giving him our honor. We, sh we should praise him. We should give him our treasure. We should lay our talents and our time at his feet. We should rejoice in the privilege of serving so great a Lord as King Jesus. And we should be enjoying the camaraderie that was evidenced 
in the ranks of those units in the army of King Jehoshaphat, even as we partake of a greater victory, a greater security than they would have been able to know. It seems that the godly people of Jerusalem could not do enough in all their enthusiasm for righteous King Jehoshaphat. Well, surely we then will respond to the majesty of God's royal son in the way that Paul urged us. He said in Colossians 3, verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Father, it's so thrilling to read about Jehoshaphat. It doesn't take us long, Lord, for our minds to linger forward and say, oh, no, 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 this is just a foretaste of our Jesus And the kingdom, your eternal kingdom is in his hands. And those are the hands that were nailed to the cross that we might be forgiven of our sins. Lord, would you lift our hearts up for Jesus? And then, Lord, in the consecration of our lives, could we we make a difference? Lord, we, we can, we know. You tell us we can make a difference in this dark generation. That you will bless, you will bless us all if we will seek you with all of our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.